Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Nick's Notes on Slice of Healthcare. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I am incredibly privileged and honored to introduce today's guest, uh, Anish Chopra. And Anish now is CEO of a company called Care Journey, but has the esteemed title of being the first ever Chief Technology Officer of the United States of America. Yes, he was CTO of the United States working for President Obama in his administration, and I had the honor of knowing him and meeting him then. And uh, since then, he's done a lot of amazing things at the intersection of tech and healthcare. Welcome to the program, Anish. Nick, thank you for having me and for your friendship. Uh, thank you. So let me let me start here, Anish, because you were in working with the administration, the Obama administration at the time, when healthcare underwent a pretty massive change, not one that we haven't since seen. The Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, is still around, now more popular than ever, more enrollees this year than ever before. It went through its ups and downs and kinks and quirks. But what was it like being on the inside of creating that substantial a policy change? Well, remember, there were kind of two bites at this apple, and they came at us at the same time, which is what made that moment in history very interesting. We were in the middle of the economic crisis, and so President Obama was working at a big dollar investment for moving the economy forward, but made the conscious decision that he was going to reserve maybe $100 billion of the $700 billion in the stimulus program for reinvestment. It was the Recovery and Reinvestment Act. And so he chose to make healthcare IT, healthcare modernization, digitization, uh, in advance of the Affordable Care Act as a priority. So the $35 billion investment in medical records was a jolt, but really a down payment on where we wanted to go in terms of care delivery reform. So at that moment, it was an all hands on deck, which was how do we dispense the money immediately, given the economic situation, but to encourage the industry to make investments to move from fee-for-service and counter-based billing software to population-based chronic care management, longitudinal care uh, support. And that was a a tricky, sticky wicket many ways uh, to try to move. But we felt that if we could put the down payment in and we saw that the care delivery reform provisions in the Affordable Care Act came to market, we may thread the needle to the point where the demand signal for the features and functions that we invested in and wish to have would be available in time when we needed the healthcare system to modernize. Really complicated to land both of those. They didn't align, unfortunately, as we wished. So that's why we have this gap of, we wish we had more interoperability, we wish we had more value-based care. Gosh, they were supposed to go in tandem, but you know, things don't work out as, as dreamed. Well, so that leads to a follow-up question. And, and I know this firsthand, my wife is Renee of Hey Renee and a physician. And back in 2010, physicians got a meaningful use credit of up to $40,000 per doctor for implementing EMRs. Thank you, President Obama. That was great. And my wife was really one of the first in the San Fernando Valley to really um, uh, really, uh, implement in, in that area and stuff. So she helped a lot of doctors. That moved doctors to electronic medical records finally. Now, what we're all hoping for is health records interoperability, which President Obama started the ball rolling on with the 21st Century Cures Act, but which is still 
stubbornly not where we would all want it to be, right? My credit card information flows dramatically easier, or my credit information. I was t- I said this on a previous episode. Last year, I bought a car over the phone. I gave my social security number, my driver's license number, and the car showed up at my house, right? And I yes, that reeks of privilege, and I'm privileged. But the point is, my health records don't move that easily. What will it take to get the kind of interoperability we all want? Yeah, we are hoping for three things to come together. And the good news is the default setting now is they are coming together. It's just at what pace? Number one, there are a little bit of technical steps that need to be taken. And that takes the form of a proprietary EHR fragmented database uh, market. So every doctor has their own IT system. It's got their own data model. We've had to map American healthcare data to a common open data model. That mapping has been hard work, but we are now reaching the point by the end of this calendar year 2022, where all certified EHRs can spit out a common view of a patient summary. And that actually a pretty big accomplishment and it's happened already. So we've got the common data model. And for those that don't know, what is that common data model called? It's the FHIR data model, okay? And it's, there's no intellectual property limitation. You don't have to license anything. It's available as a common language to access structured data on patients. The good news is Apple Health has proven that it works across EHRs. So you could see the same profile coming from an Epic system and a Cerner system and an eClinical work system, and it does appear in a common format so you can trend and show uh, uh, circumstances over time. Number two, we also needed a mechanism for a consumer with an application on their phone to invoke the request for this record and to have it return that common data model. So we've got a mixture of the API transaction, the Fire API, with the uh, data model. So technical work is shipping. We now have a business model incentive. We are moving to more total cost of care economic models. So now your primary care doctor is incentivized to work with you to aggregate their records and to make sure that if something's happening when they're not in in the doctor's office, the doctor can be alerted and manage something before it turns into a bit of a disease progression issue in the emergency room. Finally, and I think this is the part where we're all trying to figure out, we need rules of the road to make sure that as we do this, we've got a marketplace of trusted applications that operate akin to a fiduciary, in my view. And that last step is a little bit of the last mile here, which is there's no privacy regulation for consumer apps, unlike the HIPAA-regulated doctors and hospitals. And so we're a bit of a mixing of metaphors here about uh, privacy and security and some of the other things. So we got to work through these issues to get the true healthcare interoperability. But thanks to the work of the past decade, it's much closer and practical to invest to bring these ideas to life. And hey, Renee is going to be a great example of it as you scale. Thank you, uh, Anish. And thanks for that explanation. For those listening that just don't know, uh, uh, FHIR is FHIR. It's fast healthcare interoperability requirement. Um, And, and, what I will say is that interoperability is farther ahead than most people think it is, but I agree with you that the privacy is a critical thing. We're in a world now where people go into their social networks and post about their cancer treatment, and consumer apps don't have to follow HIPAA, but providers do, and it's a sort of, the, the best analogy I say is that you can sell anything as a nutrition supplement, 
but you can't sell anything as a subscription drug, a prescription drug, without 19 kinds of approvals. Um, so let me ask you about that moment, and then I want to move to what you're doing now. But in that moment, there were, you know, 60 and famously 59 senators in the reconciliation mode of getting the Affordable Care Act, and there was unprecedented opposition, but it is unlikely that one party is going to hold 60 Senate seats anytime in the foreseeable future, right? There is, There are more big steps to be taken in healthcare, whether I'm not saying Medicare for all, I'm not saying not Medicare for all, I'm saying there are big steps. We have to reform value-based care because it's too easy to skim off the top with risk adjustment, gaming the risk course and stuff. Will there be, what will it take to get another sort of moment at the federal level to pass the net. We also have to incent more people to become doctors in this country, by the way. Yeah, so I, Nick, I've got a MacGyver mindset. And that is, what are the dreams I have to make the system more affordable? If you fundamentally believe that we'll have a publicly financed half of the insurance industry and a privately administered delivery model, then if that's the construct, we have a lot of the laws on the books to optimize more transparency, more feedback loops as to what works, more data liquidity. We just need to kind of put these pieces together. And I think the legal frameworks allow us to do more than we have today to deliver the dream we have for the healthcare system of the future. So I'm trying to motivate bottom-up MacGyver-style coalitions to bring about that coordinated, integrated care model that feels fragmented and disconnected uh, today. And we don't need another law for that. So one powerful thing to remember is the Medicare Innovation Center was given an unprecedented piece of power, the ability to have unlimited waiver authority and investments to test, validate, and then if those experiments work, scale across the entire Medicare chassis new models and new financing uh, arrangements. So we don't need Congress to get in there and write one more big law. We may need tweaks along the dimension of how do we bring this to Medicaid? Where's the commercial data coming in? And how do we onboard employers? But those are things that you can do in a more collaborative, voluntary way to put points on the board. So I'm bullish we're going to see more scale up in this decade of implementation of the ACA than perhaps the first decade. I, I agree with you. And I would tell the listeners that if you don't follow what CMS is doing or what CMI is doing, you should. And I'll tell you why. 2018 remote monitoring codes went live for the first time. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. 2019, and we were part of the push with Seema Verma and Dr. Kate Goodrich, who were at CMS under the Trump administration and largely got left alone in the rest of Trump's chaos, um, allowed Dr. House calls, which was instrumental to us at Heal, but Dr. Dr. House calls. Primary Care First came, I think, in 2020 or 21. Yep. I can't remember. Yep. And Direct Contracting came in 2021. These are all substantial innovations in the way healthcare can be delivered that I think our patient... Uh, improving the lives of patients. So let's let's shift gears, Anish. You chose not to stay in the public sector and decided to do an exciting startup called Care Journey. Tell us about it. What does Care Journey do and why is it important? 
Well, Care Journey is one step on the other side of the public-private handshake that I referred to. So where I was in the government, opening up the data, facilitating APIs, thinking about payment reform and the workflows associated, Care Journey is a democratizing open data platform that says we want to understand what's working in healthcare and disseminate those findings, including ratings on physicians and networks on how well they can move to a frag uh, from fragmented to coordinated care. So Care Journey is essentially an open data platform for value-based care and a next generation physician ratings engine that can be used to help us all understand a loved one needs care, who's the best doctor in my neighborhood to support that care. And that gets me excited because we think of ourselves as a utility service and it's companies that take it to the last mile, provider networks, to digital health companies that will work to incorporate that information uh, so patients get the best possible care. So we see ourselves as just another utility service provider in the move to value. And and for those that don't know, it's an incredibly important service. Just yesterday, I was texted by a friend uh, who I've worked with before, and her father had a brain bleed and went to the ICU. And she was like, who's the best neurosurgeon, right? And they asked me because I used to run heal and I'm local and my wife's a physician, but that's where we're at. Who is it like, I don't know anything, right? But that's where most Americans get this kind of information. As yeah, and the to... fuel for that kind of answer to the question comes from the fact that every single Medicare claim is stored in a big database, a multi-billion records database that is now available for public use, including commercial use. So we have a license to that asset to say every neurosurgeon, this one really focuses on the spine, this one focuses on these sort of conditions, and you could do a whole lot of segmentation based on what doctors do and the patients they treat than just looking them up in the phone book. Yeah, it, and, and I think, think about this, that when we want to pick a restaurant, we'll look at Yelp. Oh, it's four and a half stars on Yelp. Okay, I'll try it out. Or when we want to watch a movie, we'll go, oh, it's 81% on rotten, rotten Tomatoes. It must be good. We want to pick a doctor. It's like we ask our neighbor, hey, we're having a baby. Who would you use, right? No, the average person isn't qualified to give that assessment specific to your health needs. And that's what Anish and his team are building. So Anish, last question for you, and then we'll do what I call a hot take. Uh, last question is you were in the public sector and the private sector now. Which one do you enjoy more? I love the public-private interface. So it's a cheat on your question, because when I was in the government, I had to mobilize the private sector to drive innovation. And now that I'm in the private sector, I kind of need the government to open up more data. So there's that, the, the, the handoff and the handshake between the public sector and the private sector, that moment is what gives me the most excitement. And I feel we've got decades of work ahead in health and energy and education by optimizing at that interface. Okay, and here's a hot take question. 2021 set a record for health tech funding, by far doubled the previous record. Uh, some early indications in 2022, falling public market caps over SPACs. Is 2022 a bull year or a bear year for health tech investing? Venture tech. Bull year for health tech that drives value. I agree. I think that's real the key. value. Yep. Yes. In the context of societal constraining inflation, moving people to higher quality outcomes. If you can deliver on any of that, the road is rosy. If you're a 
sort of spot checking some risk adjustment arbitrage or trying to optimize fee-for-service billing codes, you may not be as uh, successful. But, but for those that are moving down the, uh, the agenda we outlined during this conversation, it's never been rosier. Awesome. Thank you very much. Zanish uh, Chopra, Care Journey. I'm Nick Desai. Uh, hey, Renee, thank you everyone for listening.